Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey, folks, it's Rena Jadhav here founder of HealCircle.org, coming to you actually from a beautiful ranch in Wyoming today, which is why my backdrop looks a little different. And we are talking today about the end of diabetes with Dr. Kent Sassy. Hi, Dr. Sassy. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. So I'm going to introduce you a little bit, and then we're going to dive right in. Now, for those of you who are listening or watching, um, just a couple of stats, right? So we don't realize how insanely prevalent diabetes and prediabetes are, but the, the numbers are mind-boggling. I mean, something like one in three or four of us has prediabetes and just doesn't even know it. And of course, we've got over 30 million uh, Americans who've got diabetes itself. Now, the problem with diabetes is that it creates a lot of other issues. It gives you know, kidney failure, amputations, eye issues, heart issues. It's not just a sugar problem. It's a whole body problem. And as you know, at HealCircle.org, we are on a mission to end chronic illness, which means diabetes has to go. So our guest today is hopefully in the next um, 40 minutes or so going to give us that formula. Uh, quick background, he is the lead surgeon at Sassy Surgical Associates in Reno, and he's also the director of the Obesity Prevention Foundation, which is a nonprofit uh, which is dedicated to the prevention of obesity and excessive weight gain in children and adolescents. Uh, Dr. Sassy is a speaker, mentor to surgeons. Um, he's an author of numerous peer-reviewed articles. He's written a book, which is why we're talking to him today. Uh, but he's also an acclaimed award-winning author of five books, not just this one, A Marathon Runner, A Father of Five. Again, welcome, Dr. Sassy. Tell us a little bit about your book before we dive right in. Oh, thank you very much. Well, uh, this book is going to talk a little bit about uh, a somewhat controversial subject, but an interesting one that has a lot of uh, science behind it, and that's the subject of metabolic surgery and how it relates to type 2 diabetes. Uh, but along the way, I hope to inform a lot of people about uh, why we're getting diabetes and what some of the paths are that we might be able to utilize to unwind this epidemic and hopefully do so without having to go to surgery. But for those who need it, I just want them to be able to understand what it's all about nowadays because it's changed so much. Yep, here's the book. All right, that looks like a great book, so let's get started. First of all, apparently, we've got it all wrong, as you say in the book. What did we get wrong about diabetes? Well, I think what we've gotten wrong is that we have become entirely focused on treating the number. And by that, I mean we have more and more medications by some very well-intentioned and well-funded pharmaceutical industries that uh, have a business model of treating a blood sugar number. And... Uh, while that allows the doctors and sometimes the person living with it to sort of pat themselves on the head and say, hey, I'm doing a good job by controlling the blood sugar number, the truth is that that is not stopping the silent progression of the disease. Right. And it 
causing all those bad things that you mentioned because um, it really attacks those tiny blood vessels and nerves in our body and it leads to a lot of havoc. So I think that's the chief thing that we've got wrong is we've got to stop thinking about treating the number and we've got to start thinking about how to eradicate or reverse the disease. And I'm going to underscore and repeat that because I cannot tell you the number of people that think that by taking insulin or by taking their meds, they're actually treating their disease. So to recap, what you are saying is that just because you're getting some kind of medication to manage your insulin number does not mean that that sugar impact in your body has disappeared. The havoc of a mismanaged internal metabolic system is still there. And that's why diabetics just get sicker and sicker and sicker. And you don't necessarily ever get better from taking your medications. Although it's a phenomenal way to manage that number in a very short term. Yeah, I agree with everything there. I guess I would only add one small thing. I think you're right. We have to, we sort of have to take the medications to stay out of the emergency room, for example. You know, if our blood sugar gets wildly out of control, of course, that's no good. You don't want to wind up in the emergency room uh, with an acute problem. And, and in, with all due credit to the great endocrinologists and diabetologists who argue with me on, on various platforms, <laughs> um, the truth is that the research does show that their medication regimen has made some headway in reducing the complications of the disease and also the long-term mortality of the disease. But it is in no way solving the underlying problem for most people. So, you know, I give them a little credit for slowing down the progression, but nowhere near enough. And definitely not enough talk going on about how to really put it in complete remission or cure it or reverse it instead of treating the number. And that's because we've got a lot of myths out there. And you specifically talk about three myths. What are those three myths that we're all buying into? Well, um, there, so the first myth is uh, this idea that um, there is, for most people, that there really is some sort of magical fix out there that we've uh, shown and demonstrated in peer-reviewed studies. And now granted, you know, randomized controlled trials aren't everything, and peer-reviewed studies are often not available. But most people and most uh, patients that I see here um, still kind of harbor this notion that it's it's their fault and that you know they've done everything wrong and that if they could just get on the right uh, program or you know if I had the right supplement or if my doctor had put me in the right program that this would all unwind and reverse but I just don't think the evidence will um, support that what I think is going on is that we have a huge environmental change in the last approximately 40 or 50 years that has really hijacked our metabolism in a way that we're just beginning to understand. So myth number one is that it's my fault or it's that it's our fault as a person or a patient because, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not exercising enough or I'm eating too much junk food. Yes, we deserve a little blame, but that does not explain this widespread global pandemic of diabetes. So we can't blame ourselves too much. So that was a long-winded answer to number one, but it's not your fault is the short answer. <laughs> uh, myth number two is that there's an easy program or an easy fix. Uh, we just don't have it yet. There's not an easy sort of off-the-shelf diet and exercise program that you can just say, this works all the time. Um, and myth number three, I would say, is that the metabolic changes um, that take place, while they're not fully well understood, there's something that uh, needs to take place in order to kind of 
hack our metabolism or, or take back control of our metabolism that has been altered by the environmental changes. Um, and today, for many people, that requires metabolic surgery to do that. Uh, for some people, they can unwind it with a really vigorous long-term program of diet and exercise change, and I, I hope we'll talk a little bit about that too. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is, I think, the right time for you to just tell the listeners how does someone even get diabetes or pre-diabetes and why is it so out of control? Because again, I can tell you from firsthand experiences of all the different people who come into HealedCircle.org, most of those who have diabetes or pre-diabetes who've been diagnosed with pre-diabetes just don't understand it. Um, some of them are vegetarians and some of them are not necessarily obese and they're not quite sure. And I think there's this myth of, oh, it's probably just genetic. You have it because your great-grandfather had it or some such mm -hmm. uh, linkage. So for those out there who don't even truly understand, quick primer on what is diabetes and pre-diabetes and according to you, why is it so out of control? Well, um, so uh, there are really three primary factors that give us diabetes. One of them is our genetics. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the second is our body weight. There's no doubt about that one. And the third is aging. So we all start getting more and more insulin resistant as we age. And that just means that the insulin is not helping push all the blood sugar into our cells. So you'll see people with great genes who get diabetes as 90-year-olds, right? Um, but if you take that same person and then you give them a kind of a rich family history with lots of diabetes, they'll get it much younger. And then if that same person is overweight or obese, then, oh boy, they can get it as teenagers. So those three factors are the biggest ones. The thing that's changed the most in the last 50 years is that um, there has been a wholesale change in the food supply and a number of other factors that um, are leading to that, that interplay between our genetic blueprint and the environment, the foods we put in our body. So that while those same three factors are still the key ones, it's just way more of us are pre-diabetic and diabetic now than was the case 50 years ago. You can be a super active soccer mom and be way more active than your grandmother would have been and have the same genes, but all of a sudden that person is uh, well into type 2 diabetes at age you know, 38. Uh, so that's an environmental change. That's not a change in genetics. Um, and diabetes really just means that we have too much circulating blood sugar, and mostly that comes from what's called insulin resistance. Uh, and uh, but only about you know five percent of people have that problem of lack of insulin secretion, the so-called type ones. That's what we used to talk about all the time, but now ninety-five percent of it is type two, which really has more to do with insulin resistance in the cells and is so related to weight. Uh, and that's really where we are today. Uh, it's just a terrible problem, though, because as you say. It's that silent damage that's being done in the background as it attacks the smallest, most vulnerable blood vessels, kidneys, retinas, toes, and that's really where we see the damage being done over the years. Define insulin resistance, because again, it's a, it's a great medical term, which very few common people understand. What the heck is insulin resistance? <laughs> and which organ is to blame for it? Yeah, right. Uh, I wish we knew exactly which organ is to blame for it, but we use that term to just describe the way the, the tissues process and internalize the blood sugar. So despite the fact that we have normal circulating insulin, which is supposed to help us take the sugar in from the bloodstream and put it into the cells and be used as energy, um, that process isn't working because the cells for some reason just aren't accepting and utilizing the insulin and the blood sugar. So it remains circulating out there and kind of building up in the bloodstream. And um, 
it's not a problem of not having enough insulin. It's not a problem like those type 1 diabetics, the young people who don't make regular insulin. It's that the whole body's cells are just not seeing it. They're not hearing it. They're not able to accept it. And it's thought to be kind of faulty, uh, faulty cellular mechanisms uh, all over the body. Um, but it's just as damaging. You know, if anything, it's, it's worse in some ways than, um, than having just lousy insulin production because it affects, you know, all the organs. One of the uh, sort of big projects that uh, our lab in, in Nevada is just doing a tiny little bit of because it's going to take such a big effort is to try to understand the ways in which our environment is adversely affecting our blood sugar metabolism and, and contributing to type 2 diabetes. Um, there's a lot of indirect evidence that uh, changes in the food supply, changes in the cultivars of wheat and rice and soy and a lot of the major agricultural products and kind of all of our background foods are hitting our metabolism in a way that wasn't the case 50 years ago. And you could sort of think of that as a toxin. Um, there are probably a lot of other ones too. Some people implicate trace, uh, trace uh, elements from uh, pharmaceuticals that are turning up in water supplies and ubiquitously in all sorts of people that may be having subtle effects with respect to our metabolism as well. The sad thing is that if, if this epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes was, let's say, di different, let's say it was cancer of a particular organ, we would probably have a, a national effort to try to understand it and solve it. But because it's obesity and it kind of seems like, well, maybe we should just blame these people because it's their fault, we don't really have the big organized uh, kind of NIH level research effort to solve what is the environmental effect, um, environmental cause. Uh, but clearly there's an environmental cause to most of this ep uh, epidemic. So that sounded a lot like what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, glad to hear you confirm that. And in addition to that, and I'm not saying that's the only reason I'm saying, I think that's yeah. a contributing factor. You know, we've got case studies that we've shared, we've published with our community where um, a, a physical therapist had severe diabetes, was about to get on insulin shots, was told, you don't like needles, why don't you try the alternate nostril breathing? Mm -hmm. And he thought that was the biggest joke, but he was desperate, so he tried it. And he did it 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, and um, 90 days later, his blood sugar numbers had dropped significantly to the point uh, where he had to adjust his medication, and we actually have a video on this. So, you know, mental stress is also a toxin. Um, you know, not eating calmly and peacefully is also a toxin because if your body is, is not digesting your food, uh, that's all becoming a toxic crap. And it's all interfering with your body's ability to metabolize uh, insulin and, and other, frankly, other vitamins and minerals as well. So um, one of the things we always say at HealedCircle.org is, you know, first step one is follow a simple, uh, we have a free online course on this, you know, Healthify. It's one small change a day for seven days from breathing better to eating better to drinking better water to detoxing and just start to lead a little healthier life and then see how much of an impact that makes. Now, you've got some recommendations as well on uh, when someone gets diagnosed, what are the first three, four things that they must do immediately? Could you share those, please? Absolutely. Yeah, we do see a lot of people at that stage, and we try to um, uh, talk about the long-term battles. So it's, there's no quick fix, and um, so we try to talk right away about diet that's uh, emphasizing vegetables and reducing carbohydrates. Um, there are a million different diets that are 
hard to compare in organized ways, but I think if we take broad brush strokes and sort of emphasize vegetables, uh, those are the healthiest thing going on Mother Nature and reduce the carbohydrates, especially those that come in a package and have mascots. Um, and I think we're off to a good start, right? And then we can go in more detail as we get further, but for most people, that's kind of a place to start. And then exercise, uh, you know, all exercise is good. Uh, and for our folks, we really try to talk about doing something every day. Mostly we're aiming for moderate exercise, like walking an hour a day which uh, for a lot of people is just a tall order. I mean, many people, that's really quite ambitious. So you can see we have to kind of start with, with uh, baby steps. But if I at least get everyone to agree to put on the shoes every day, doesn't mean you're going to run a 10K that day, but it means you put the shoes on, then at least you'll do something. When we start talking about seven days a week, some moderate exercise. If we can just make some headway on those two, then we've, we've come a long distance um, but definitely there's some screening things that need to be done with diabetes. People need to have their retinas checked. They need to have their toes checked. They need to be seen regularly to kind of remind them about the kinds of things to watch out for. And then as aging goes on, you have to be a little more attuned to things like heart and heart health and uh, kidney health. And so that's some blood work. And uh, so there are quite a few things that need to be followed and looked after in type 2 diabetes. And in my case, we like to talk about how do we reverse the disease entirely? How do we try to get you off those medications? So that's a big conversation as well. But that's kind let's, of where we're Let's dive right into that. And again, I think there's some misinformation out there where people think that when they go to the doctor and they're prescribed some things that they're actually treating the disease, but they're in fact managing the disease. And you, you talk a lot about the difference between managing diabetes and why that's a terrible idea and curing diabetes, which is really what everybody's goal needs to be. And then we can dive deeper into your special approach to curing diabetes. So talk a little bit about the difference between managing versus curing. Absolutely. And this is the best example because uh, with type 2 diabetes, while controlling the blood sugar number, as we said, is, is a necessary thing to do, um, it's not enough. And huge studies demonstrate that people still progress to heart attack and stroke and kidney failure at a way higher rate than the rest of us do without diabetes. So managing the number is not enough. Um, there's a subset of people in our practice and I think in the wider community who are really able to, um, to embrace this idea of, of a big increase in their daily exercise and also a pretty dramatic change in the diet that they have been uh, accustomed to. Uh, and they are able to really reverse this process entirely. I know a handful of people who've been successful at doing that um, for the long term. I know quite a few who've done it in a very short-term way. As you might imagine, the peer review studies are not super compelling that many of us can do this in a, in a durable way, but I, I know enough personal examples that we always start there. And so if a person is physically able and mentally able and has the capacity in their crazy life as parents and working and putting food on the table, then uh, we try really hard to see if we can't reverse it entirely through diet and exercise. And that means reducing carbohydrates all over the place, reducing alcohol, and then increasing exercise uh, more and more and more. Um, there's also a fraction of people, um, and uh, those are the people that I see the most in the surgical practice who have exhausted those attempted remedies. And believe me, they have put their heart into it. People will come in with uh, logs and journals of the efforts they have put in. In many cases, it's 
chronicled on blogs and, and video, and, and you can see it in their heart that they have really worked at this uh, in a very serious way. Um, and for those people, the path back to health involves surgically um, changing this chemistry, this hormonal programming that we have that has intersected with the environment to make diabetes and obesity. And so metabolic surgery today has come a long way. It's about a 45-minute procedure where uh, with four Band-Aids and a procedure that's a little safer than a gallbladder or appendix surgery, there's this change that takes place with the hormonal chemistry. And so body weight and the sort of set point mechanism resets. And not all, but most people with type 2 diabetes will see it go into remission or reversal. We sort of cautiously use the word cure when it's been gone for five years or more. Um, but I like the word remission better. But in any case, that's, uh, that's the card to play for those people. Talk a little bit about the procedure itself and what kind of results have you seen in terms of it not returning for five years, um, those patients that have gone through this procedure? Yeah. Um, so the procedure itself uh, has gone from, uh, it has about a 70-year history. Few people don't always realize that uh, 75 years ago, uh, surgeons were doing surgery for weight loss and diabetes uh, resolution. Um, in the 90s, there were some papers showing uh, very high rates of diabetes remission or reversal from surgery. But in the last 20 years or so, we've gone from doing more aggressive kind of bypass procedures or putting in some sort of foreign body like the band to doing this much simpler procedure that I describe in a bunch of detail with diagrams and stuff called the sleeve procedure, which sounds like some sort of device or sock that you'd wrap around the stomach, but really it just means trimming off this outer portion of the stomach tissue itself. And that is where we believe some of the important hormones and some of the biochemistry lives that is uh, regulating our body weight and metabolism. So when that is trimmed off, it's really not so much that the stomach is smaller and that's why we lose weight. It's really this hormonal change that, it, that is uh, responsible for most of the reversal of weight and diabetes. Um, you know, I'll just throw out one thing that I'm, I'm sure it's sometimes hard for listeners to try to gauge like, what's the uh, sort of, what weight should I give to this guest or that one or people who have different theories that sound good? And um, while I'm the first to say that clinical trials and various forms of evidence are not the be all and end all, I will say that this metabolic surgery is, uh, has been studied carefully in 12 randomized prospective controlled trials. It's what's considered level 1A evidence in the kind of the doctor world, which is the kind of highest level of evidence. Uh, so it's, it's a recommended treatment now for type 2 diabetes by the American Diabetes Association and basically every other health association that is not a pharmaceutical uh, sort of site. Um, and so the weird thing is that despite that, um, only you know, less than 1% of people really take advantage of that uh, who really could. So it's a little bit of a peculiar mismatch there. But um, in any case, that's what we think is going on with the surgery. One of the really interesting things that we're trying to learn from it uh, in our lab is how exactly is it doing that? Because if we could understand more about the magic of these hormonal changes reversing diabetes, then maybe we could find a way to get there with nutrition or with medications or something else. Uh, so one day, I hope we'll be able to come back and talk about that. But uh, for now, we got this. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive deeper into what you have termed metabolic surgery. So. Let's say I'm a patient and I come in. Uh, 
my first question, how do you determine if I'm qualified for the metabolic surgery? Uh, well, uh, there are some guidelines out there. So, uh, for example, the American Diabetes Association guidelines would say uh, we take a look at weight and blood sugar, basically those two factors. Okay. Uh, so if a person has a body mass index, so that's just a height weight calculation uh, that's over 35 and they have type 2 diabetes, then they're a candidate. They're already a candidate. And that comes from this evidence that I've described now over the past 10 or 15 years where level 1A evidence shows that people live longer, have half as many heart attacks, have less strokes and amputations if they have metabolic surgery than if they get the best medicines available and they okay. stay on the shots. We'll and get there. We're going to go one by one. So, so okay. question you said, basically, if I'm a certain BMI and I have diabetes, I'm qualified. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else. Like you're not looking at uh, tolerance to surgeries or heart issues. There's nothing else that would disqualify someone from the surgery itself. Um, no, there, there is always more to it. You're right. Uh, it's always something to kind of carefully consider. And, um, so in, in our case, we sort of talk it through with the patient. I always tell people, you know, you have to do what's right in your heart. So if I sense that a person, maybe they haven't given it their all to really work at a diet and exercise program, you know, it might very well be that this is the time to kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm going to give this six months and we have a lot of help information, support, dietitian classes. This may be the time to go that direction, right? Um, other times it's clear that people have exhausted that and they're getting their second knee replacement and their health is so far past it that we need to get this surgery done. So for them, it's so life-saving that we try to knock down any barriers uh, but absolutely, we do make sure they're safe for surgery and evaluate their heart and their health to go through it. Okay. But like I said, it's a way less invasive procedure than it used to be. Let's talk about that. So step two, you say, Rena, you can undergo the surgery. I say, great, what's next? So walk me through what are the preparatory steps, if any, and then I'm assuming you just schedule the surgery, and then we'll talk a little bit about how the surgery actually works, and then we'll talk after that about the surgical post-care um, so second question is, what happens next? We both agreed it's the right thing for me to do. What happens next? Uh, next is we do a little bit of education. I sort of want everyone to be on the same page. And so uh, we give them lots of materials to read and we put them through a couple of classes that we put on that some of it is basic sort of nutrition 101, some of it's diabetes 101. And then some of it is talking about uh, how to be successful, kind of a guide that emphasizes what I was saying about exercise every day and kind of the path to long-term victory. Um, there are some health uh, insurance hurdles as well. So uh, oftentimes the health insurance plans create a little bit of uh, hoops to jump through. So that might be some additional doctor visits. And then as the surgeon, of course, we do a few things to make sure everyone is safe for surgery. So that may be evaluating a person's heart if they're a bit older or uh, their kidneys or lungs or having other specialists see them. And so as we get through all of that in the classes, then we meet up again personally one-on-one -on -one to kind of make sure we're all on the same page and questions have been answered. And then we schedule the surgery. So that whole process is often six months. Got it. And what's the cost, out-of-pocket cost, of the surgery to someone who does have insurance? 
if they do have insurance, then they're paying their copay. They're kind of each plan's a little different, but call it you know their ten or twenty percent. They'll they'll have some deductible to meet. So it may end up still being a few thousand dollars. In some cases, it may be a few hundred dollars. Okay. And then if they don't have insurance that would cover it, in our market, it's about fifteen or sixteen thousand uh, dollars. In some markets, it's a bit more than that, but uh, somewhere in that ballpark. Okay, so it's a pretty significant investment. Yeah. And so again, someone would pre-qualify themselves into whether it was appropriate for them or not. But let's say I have insurance, it's gonna be a couple of hundred dollars for me, and you've shown me all the casework to say that, that it's going to work, it's gonna deliver what I need. And I've gone through the videos, and now I'm prepped for surgery, I come in. Describe the actual metabolic surgery procedure itself. What exactly are you doing? <laughs> um, so few people ask me that. <laughs> um, so what we're doing... I have a morbid curiosity, Dr. Bassett. <laughs> uh, so it's under general anesthesia. So uh, people we meet in the preoperative area and we talk a little and I meet loved ones. Then usually the anesthesiologist says hello and there's a little talking. And then usually a little medication is delivered right then, kind of the pre-medication as we refer to it. And for most people, that's a very relaxing medicine, and that's really the last thing they remember until they wake up in the recovery room. But what we do is roll you down into the recovery room and have you climb on over to an operating table, get nice and comfy there, and then drift off to sleep. The anesthesiologist has the airway, so there's a general anesthesia. The tummy is prepped with antiseptic solution. And then we make four small incisions that uh, allow us to pass some long, thin instruments one of which is a real high resolution camera. And then we work with some instruments that allow us to remove the outer portion of the stomach tissue, sort of a precise way to do that. Um, and there's a few steps involved during that, but once that's out and we think everything is good, then we uh, allow that CO2, that's the gas that is put in to let us see inside in laparoscopy or minimally invasive surgery. So that comes out, and then those instruments come out, and then there's just a couple dissolving stitches, and those four band-aids go on. And then we wheel over to recovery, and the person wakes up in recovery about 45 minutes later. How long does the entire procedure take? Usually about 45 minutes. Um, there are times where, you know, it can be longer if there's uh, uh, someone, yesterday I had a case of a fellow who was 500 plus pounds, and it took us a little longer, but still only about an hour. Um, and occasionally someone's had a lot of prior surgery. And so we take our time. There's no, you know, there's not a prize for finishing first and speed. Thank God. <laughs> exactly. So we're just careful is all, but usually less than an hour. Okay. So I want to understand this. You said you take some tissue out. So you're not taking fat out. This isn't a tummy. Right. Tummy. That's right. Yeah. And it's not, you're not tying a band inside my stomach to shrink the volume in my stomach. Right. What exactly are you doing? What tissue are you removing from my stomach? Well, the stomach itself is a kind of a big stretchy thing, and uh, we're trimming off most of the outer portion of the stomach tissue so that what's left behind looks a little bit more like a slender banana rather than a big expansile sort of oval-shaped balloon. Uh, so this kind of slender banana shape is what the surgeons 80 years ago coined a sleeve. Because if you can imagine me here and, and looking at the sleeve of my jacket, it's kind of long and tubular, kind of slender. You could imagine it being a little slender banana shaped. They called it a sleeve gastrectomy back then. 
So that tissue being removed from the outside isn't fat, but it's real important in terms of regulating body weight and metabolism. Very fascinating because that must tell us something about diabetes. It must, exactly. And have you put your brilliant brain cells to work to connect the dots and say, aha, we know what causes it. We are trying to, and uh, we have made precious little headway, disturbingly little headway. Uh, so there have been a few avenues that have been explored. There's a few different hormones that have been identified that are affected by that procedure that uh, turn out to probably just be extra bystanders in this process. We've yet to really figure out what's the linchpin? What's the What's the key thing that is changing as a result of this tissue going away? We can now measure 20 or 30 different bioactive peptides that change dramatically when you trim off that stomach tissue, uh, but none of them seems to be the primary mechanism. So we're all still kind of puzzling over why this works the way it does. But I'm sure we'll have an answer as you do more and more of these surgeries. So <laughs> with that said, um, you know, kind of, Final question, as we look down the horizon, you know, as, as we look at five years from now, where do you think the diabetes cure movement is going to be? I mean, what, what's the big holy grail uh, beyond just the surgery itself? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I hope that the surgery is leading us to a much better understanding of the biochemical mechanisms of diabetes. You'd think we knew the answer to that, but we really have a very poor understanding of it. So my hope is that because this surgery came about as a bit of a surprise to the diabetology community, that this works so much better than the other approach, uh, that we don't yet have the long lead time for good science to develop and give us proper answers. So I'm afraid it's longer than a, than a five-year time frame, but I hope I'm wrong. Um, and then my biggest hope is that this further leads to us understanding the intersection with that biology and the environment. Uh, because many of us are convinced that there's been a profound environmental change that's interfering with our genetics and leading to this problem. And a real solution is not better surgery or even better medications. It's really a policy change that's going to help us solve some of the environmental problem that le that's leading to this. So that's where I think the end game is. Very cool. Why do you think uh, metabolic surgery has not become as popular and as, you know, as more commonplace, given that it is supported by the Diabetic Association? It is a curiosity. You know, I think part of it is that it sounds scary. Uh, it sounds a lot scarier than it really is. It also carries a lot of baggage from past surgery, which was a bit scary uh, and had more complications. I think it's also kind of a culture shift from the doctors, that di uh, diabetologists, endocrinologists, um, primary care doctors, who are used to treating diabetes with a shots and pills approach, and also, frankly, this managing the number paradigm. So I think this is really kind of a culture shift for those people who are kind of in charge of referring folks for treatments. Um, I think it's multifactorial, but it is a little bit of a head-scratcher because we see adoption of things that are far scarier like open-heart surgery or even nowadays surgery for Parkinson's disease. And here we have something that's actually way less invasive, safer, and arguably way more effective, but it's got a pretty low adoption rate. So we'll see. I don't know. Okay. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much. Any last parting shot to someone who's diabetic or pre-diabetic, what is the one thing that you recommend they start doing immediately? Ooh, immediately. Well, <laughs> we always talk about uh, keep fighting and it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, so I guess my immediately thing would be um, to uh, put on the shoes every day and uh, do that one little bit of extra exercise every single day and commit to that for the long haul. I love that. I love that advice. Go check out healedcircle.org uh, or goddiagnose.org. You'll see diabetes as a box. Click on it. We've got some, uh, some great free things for you, including a free Healthify seven-day, one small change a day. Uh, program that you can do on your own at your home at your convenience you've got some movement videos there's a very simple two to three minute video with uh, dr zach bush that'll get you moving without even leaving your home uh, but you will have to get off the couch and <laughs> um, and a few other things including uh, of course uh, links and more information to dr sassy's practice as well as to his book so if you love this interview, make sure you check out his book. Uh, you can absolutely schedule a consult. I checked out your site, Dr. Sassy. It says, you know, you, they can call, they can schedule a consult. You can participate and watch a webinar, get more information about this um, particular metabolic surgical program. And with that said, stay smiling. Dr. Sassy, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.